You're listening to Talking Credit Unions with Chris Smith. This is edition number 13, and these podcasts aim to communicate topics of interest from the world of credit unions targeted at managers, directors, volunteers, and other activists within the world of credit unions. Today I'm talking to Dr. Olive McCarthy, and she is the Senior Lecturer and Director of the Centre for Cooperative Studies at the University College Cork in Ireland. Her research over the years has been conducted mainly into credit unions and other related issues, and she points out that these offers of very high interest rates remain available even after the caps on payday loans that the UK introduced five years ago. Yet clearly high-cost credit has not gone away entirely, and it looks set to get bigger again. She points out that the Provident, one of the UK and Ireland's largest high-cost doorstep credit provider, is anticipating increased demand when the unemployment rises as the UK furlough scheme winds down. Nonetheless, the debate continues amongst policy experts worldwide about whether interest rate caps on lending are the best response. Supporters point out that the restrictions have reduced the cost of credit for low-income borrowers, tackled over-indebtedness, and helped to prevent people from being exploited. I started by asking Olive, are there interest rate caps on domestic lending in Ireland? The only institution that has an interest rate cap is actually the credit union, which is actually quite unique and quite ironic, considering what we're talking about today. So, the cap on credit unions, as you know, very familiar to the UK situation as well, is 1% per month. So basically 12.67% APR is the maximum that credit unions can charge. And they're the only financial institution that has a kind of a legal cap set on their interest that they can charge. So that's kind of unique and a bit different because when we talk about interest rate restrictions on loans or on high cost credit, credit unions are actually the only ones who have a restriction in place. Um, So when we talk about high cost credit, there is actually no legal limit as such, although money lenders or high cost credit providers are only licensed to charge up to 187% APR. And when you add in kind of collection charges and other costs, the maximum that they're allowed to to charge is 287% APR. Just from your findings, is there much of a market for those high cost lenders? Well, at the moment in Ireland, uh, there's about 150 million euro lent out by high cost credit providers in Ireland um, and an estimated around 350,000 customers in Ireland. But the research that we've done looking at um, where people borrow and what we found is that people actually borrow from multiple sources. So it's not like they're only borrowing from my lender because it's a last resort. They actually have multiple loans. So they may have a loan or two with the credit union. They may have a bank overdraft, a credit card, and also a money lender loan. So it's not that they're excluded from access to financial services or it's a, it's a last resort for them. They actually have multiple loans from different sources. So the reasons why they're borrowing kind of high cost credit is actually quite interesting when you start to kind of look into it. Why are they borrowing from a money lender, say, when they could also borrow from a credit union or from a bank? Um, and that's where it starts to get interesting looking at those reasons. And reading between the lines on that piece that you published recently, it suggests that you think that credit unions could step up a little bit more. Do they need any re-regulation to enable them to do that? Certainly they could step up. Uh, so in the Irish context, for example, we have what's known as PMC, so the Personal Microcredit Scheme. And this is intended to, I suppose, help and support credit unions to lend to those 
who might otherwise turn to a money lender for a loan. So it's small loans, but linked into their uh, social welfare payments. Um, and that kind of supports the credit unions in knowing, you know, having a fairly some level of security or some level of knowledge that there's a better chance that that loan will be repaid. But it also helps to build the credit record of the, the credit union member themselves. About half of, or a little lesser than half, about 100 credit unions in Ireland are currently um, offering or engaging in that scheme. So there's probably definitely scope for more credit unions to, to get involved in those kinds of initiatives, even though those kinds of initiatives on their own won't solve the problem as such. Um, but there is scope for, for credit unions to do more um, in this area. But then there's credit unions who aren't involved in the PME scheme directly, who are engaging with members um, who would otherwise turn to money lenders. And what's been really interesting here is the um, for any loan that's issued over €500 Euro here, the institution that's making the loan must declare that loan, such so it must, must register that loan. And then other providers or other lenders can see what other borrowings those members may have and what credit unions have found in many cases. They've been very surprised to see that even members with, say, who aren't low income, they may be you know, middle income earners, are also borrowing from money lenders. And they've been very taken aback to see just the range of borrowing that people have at different levels of income. So it's not just a low income issue. If I was being balanced about this, which I always try to be, and I was probably got provident uh, sat in the room with me now, they might say that they are a lender of last resort and they pick up some of the some of the lending that credit unions might turn away. They may be a lender of last resort for some people, but certainly not a lender of last resort for everybody. So our research has shown that people are borrowing from multiple sources. So they may be borrowing from Provident, but they're also borrowing from the credit union. They're also borrowing catalogue credit, for example. So it's not always a case of lender of last resort. So you can't assume that that's what everybody who borrows from Provident is borrowing for. They actually have multiple sources of credit. So I don't think it would be fair really to say that in every case that they're the lender of last resort, but they may be for some. But so again, you have to think about, okay, if somebody's been turned away from their credit union, there's probably a very good reason why that person has been turned away from their credit union. There's the, you know, because of already existing multiple debts um, or other issues, you know, with that member, you know, credit union won't turn somebody away lightly. And then that would suggest that, you know, there's underlying issues there. And is it in the best interest of that individual member to now add another debt burden um, onto their situation? And I think this is where credit unions help to build people's kind of financial stability or financial resilience in that they're not going to drive them further into debt. They're not motivated by driving people into debt. They're not motivated by having to increase the loan book all the time. They really have the member's interest at heart, where maybe some other providers aren't always putting the customer first. They're putting their profits first, for example. And as we know, in a credit union, it's not profit driven. It is member driven. And I think that's the distinction between you know, a very clear distinction between credit unions and other providers. And on top of that, then the credit union is really trying to build the members' resilience in the longer term. So what they're what they're doing is what no other institution does really is trying to encourage and support and enable members to save as they're repaying their loan. You know, you have your loan repaid, then you actually still have something in the pot. You've built up something into a pot that, you know, if you borrowed anywhere else, you wouldn't have that. Um, so you know, there's there's so many advantages to to borrowing from a credit union. You know, obviously there's other ones as well, but over and above just that pure 
I'm desperate for a loan, um, so I'm going to go to a money lender. Does it just a much more complex relationship and a much more beneficial relationship between a member and their credit union? So if they've been turned down by their credit union, that raises other questions. And I think it would be unfair to say that that person has been unfairly turned down and should get credit somewhere else at a higher cost. But I can hear the trade association for various high cost lenders now saying, but surely we are still providing a service. Uh, we may have to charge high interest rates, but that's to cover the enormous risks that we're prepared to take. But it's, I suppose if you look at it from a moral perspective, then so that's another way to look at it. Is it morally right to charge a thousand percent, fifteen hundred percent APR to somebody on low income? There's something wrong with that model and something that really needs to fundamentally change with that model. And Certainly, you know, maybe the risk is higher, but it, it will, if we reduce the interest rate that's chargeable, it will force some of these providers to change their model and to think about their consumers differently. We have this model that Irish credit unions are quite successful. Their penetration into the market must be, I think it's about 40, 40 odd percent of the population have some sort of relationship with a credit union. And yet, again, reading between the lines of your a recent article, it tends to suggest that they could do more. By more, do you mean grow the market even bigger? See, what's interesting is that you often hear this figure of 50% being bandied about as credit unions with 50% penetration of the population. So are, are more than 50% of people are members of credit unions. But that's a bit misleading because the way it works here is that you can join one credit union. So for example, I can join my workplace credit union and I can join my community credit union. And I used to work in a credit union part-time. I can also join that because I was a staff member in that credit union. So I can have multiple credit union memberships. And most people may be members of more than one credit union. And if you're a member of three credit unions, you're counted three times. If you're a member of two credit unions, you're counted twice. So those figures are actually um, somewhat inflated by the fact that people have multiple credit union memberships. And because each credit union entity is independent and separate, everyone's counted as a member of that individual credit union, so people can be counted more than once. So that's, I suppose, just to clear that up. Uh, but where I see the huge potential for membership is, is in young people. So I'm a lecturer in a university and I teach a module. Um, it's called cooperative banking, but essentially it's about credit unions because that's what we have here. And I teach final year business students about credit unions. And I, I start from scratch. And I start off on the first day and say, how many is a member of a credit union? And usually out of 50, I might have less than five, so about 10%. Now, 20 years ago, I've been teaching for quite a while now. Um, 20, 25 years ago, I would have had at least half of the hands in the class go up. Now, it's, that's definitely seen a strong trend towards that declining over the years. Um, and then I ask them, what do they know about credit unions? And they know there's something different. They say, look, we know it's a community type thing. We know people there are friendlier. We know it's a nicer place to do business. But we also know that the range of services aren't really as much as we would need as young people. So if they want to you know, withdraw money on a Thursday night from their credit union, uh, but they live very far away from their credit union while they're in university, then they just can't do that. So for many of them, they see it as a place to save, actually. And that's they see the huge advantage of credit unions as where, where they put their money if they don't want to be able to get at it. But I suppose the point here is that there's huge scope for expansion, I think, amongst the younger population. And I think we're probably, as credit unions, not capturing young people um, in terms of membership. 
Partly because uh, certainly I see, it, uh, you know, we're coming up to Freshers Week. I know it'll be a bit different this year, uh, but the banks are really, really strong. So you look at the university that I'm in, um, the Bank of Ireland has sole rights, sole banking rights on campus, which it has paid millions for. I don't know how much it's paid for it. But it's paid a lot of money to have sole banking rights on campus. That means that the other pillar banks, so for example, AIB, can't set a foot on campus and the same goes for the local credit union um, so the banks see the value of that youth membership or that youth you know catching young people very early on um, and uh, I think that's where the credit unions are missing out so I see a lot of scope for credit unions to expand in terms of the youth membership um, but again the services to go with that are very much needed as well. I'm very curious about the um, savings and uh, borrowing habits in banking habits of millennials. And is it Generation X that's following them? The way in which they would use their bank in terms of using a mobile phone. And our parent, my my parents, you know, would go to would go to the local branch, go to the local credit union, the local co- and the local bank. But m- millennials don't want to do the things that our parents I mean an interesting question probably I would love to know is that when you ask the 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 class that are freshers how many are members of credit unions is to ask how many of their parents were members Uh, what's interesting though is by the time they get about halfway through my module and this not saying anything about myself but once they start to realize what credit unions are about and what they stand for they think hang on a second this is the best kept secret that ever was and they can't understand why uh, they didn't know this before that this is not just about you know an old-fashioned institution in the community this is actually something that's to them is very progressive in the sense that okay you know a lot of them think about ethical business and ethical banking and so on and this is the epitome of that in many respects because you can actually, as a member, you're a part owner of this organisation. You have a say in how this is run. You have a say in the kinds of services that are offered. And there's all sorts of other benefits attaching to the services that they were never aware of. And we had a really interesting discussion in the class, I remember two years ago, where they thought the opportunity for credit unions is huge and they need to be grabbing this with both hands. They need to be out there pushing themselves as the ethical provider uh, because they have certain attributes that no other financial institution will ever be able to say that they have. And that is the ownership piece, the control piece. You know, no other banking customer or bank can ever say that that's there for them. And credit unions need to be pushing themselves out there as really genuinely concerned about their community. This is built into their principles. Um, and all of the things that, the, you know, the other institutions say they're doing. Yeah, okay, maybe they're doing it, but it's not with the same kind of mindset as a credit union might have. So they really felt there was a missed opportunity for credit unions and that if, if the range of services was there that they needed, and that's, that's the novel, I suppose, then credit unions will be made. And finally, one of the things that I found in talking to Irish credit unions this summer, particularly talking to them at the time of COVID, uh, compared with credit unions in England, uh, Scotland and Wales, is the absolute need of communities to actually go to the branch there's a big part of the credit union sort of world or culture in ireland which of course was upset slightly by the covid thing it pushed the credit unions they tell me down the further down the road of technology and communication so that in some ways has been a a mixed blessing because their members still need this face-to-face now i'm not sure but i'd welcome your view on whether the millennials and the 
Generation X people need that face-to-face contact that their parents did? That's a fantastic question, Chris, because I know the answer. (laughs) Um, My students, again, I'm just reporting back what my students said, and we've had this debate around technology versus face-to-face, and I suppose it's something that credit unions, they're trying to do both, and that's a very costly model. So the banks have moved away from the face-to-face because it's expensive, and they're just focusing on the technology which try and do both is actually quite an expensive model. But I've asked my students uh, about this and what they've said to me is that, okay, when they take out their first loan, they really like to have face-to-face because they're a bit nervous about taking out, they'd like lots of information, then you want to be able to ask questions, they want to interact with somebody. So when they're taking out their first loan, they want to talk to somebody, they want to sit in front of somebody and talk through it and understand what it's about. And then they're com- they're comfortable and happy to move to the more online approach. The, the difficulty is so many financial institutions now you apply, you never speak to somebody. So you can go through the whole process online and you may not understand. And we've just finished a piece of research actually looking at uh, what that online experience is like. And what you'll find, it's very difficult to find the terms and conditions that go with that loan. And do any of us any, really read any of that stuff anyway? Probably not. But to be able to sit down in front of somebody face to face and ask those questions and get that feedback and get that reassurance, that's what they wanted for their first loan. And then they would feel comfortable after that. They were happy to do the technology piece. So I just thought it was interesting that they saw that as a real benefit of credit unions, that you can still walk in and do that on your first loan, your first interaction. So high interest rates are usually justified by the argument that borrowers are more likely to default, often having to be turned down elsewhere. Higher rates compensate the lender for higher risk. It's interesting that Olive herself actually still thinks that there is a moral issue regarding people like uh, high street lenders should not make their customers pay more for riskier lending. So I got CFCFE in and asked Nick Money, do you think there's a moral angle to this, Nick? Do you think that the there's a moral issue about people charging too much for interest rates? Yes, Chris, I think there is. But without wanting to sit on the fence too much, I do think it's not clear cut. We in the credit union sector in Britain charge up to 3% a month, which is three times what credit unions in Northern Ireland do, for example. Not across all products, obviously, but That is driven by an attempt to lend to some people where the pricing is commensurate with the risk. But some people, and I've talked to those credit unionists in Northern Ireland, think that it it is completely wrong to charge more than 1% a month. We have cousins in the CDFI sector, community development finance institutions, who will be charging 100, 150% on small loans to very low income people. And they would argue that's entirely justifiable in terms of the needs of those individuals. And I think on a more practical level, the fact is that APR can be a bit of a distraction. For many people, the question is, how much am I repaying and can I afford that? And at very small, very low amounts of capital, the interest variation between, let's say, 1% a month, 3% a month, or 15% a month can actually be very relatively small amounts of money, less, you know, less than, say, a pound a month uh, in terms of the interest charge. So at the point where you then get to the, the moral question of should you charge somebody £30 to borrow, to borrow a sum of money or should you charge them £15 to borrow a sum of money, having, having a big debate over £15, and, and, and that, £15 that for the person involved, 
getting hold of that loan to cover the replacing the cooker school uniform whatever it is that's dancing on the heads of pins and they're not they're not so bothered by that so i do think there is a moral debate but i do think we can get we can get a bit pious about it if we're not careful olive is a member of cscfe's research advisory board where we have a number of people who are expert in the sector who can uh, help help us advise us on research topics and help assure the quality of what we do and the relevance of what we do and we've always valued olive's work on that you probably know that olive is the director of cooperative of the Centre for Cooperative Studies at University College Cork, so she's ideally placed. Olu's been working with us over the last few months too. She's been interviewing chief execs and other members of staff and some stakeholders in the credit union sector in Ireland to ask them what they know about social impact report measurement and reporting in their credit unions. You know, do they uh, measure and report on the broader impact they have on the lives of their members? financial well-being of their members on and, and the well-being of their communities. If they think that's important, why aren't they doing it now? And so Olive's right enough people will be out this weekend. And so we're then following that up with a webinar on the 25th of November when Olive will present that paper to people who join in. We will have breakout groups to discuss the issues that come up as part of that paper. Myself and Paul Jones will talk about some of the initiatives CFCFE is taking to help credit unions measure their social impact. How do you get to get on to this seminar? Sounds good. Well, if you go on the CSCFE website, on the, on the homepage or on the events page, there's a, little, there's a post about this webinar. And in that post, there's a link to a Zoom registration site. The webinar will be on Zoom. We managed that pretty successfully with our conference in September. Found people really enjoyed the interaction we were able to manage. It's, this webinar is going to be about a couple of hours, so it's not going to be as uh, onerous as a conference. But we do need people to register. So there's a, there's a link that's very easy to register for the event so that when we actually start it at 10 a.m. on the 25th, everyone who registers will be allowed in. How much does it cost, Nick? It's free. It's free to everybody um, this time around because we think this is a, an area of interest to the, the wider movement. Well, that truly is a great subject that we've been discussing today and Olive really makes it come alive for me. I love some of her work. A big thank you to our contributors today. Firstly, to Nick Money, Director at the Centre for Community Finance Europe, and to Dr. Olive McCarthy from University College Cork. And if you want to hear more from Nick and Olive, you better take up CFCFE's offer of a free seminar. This is the Credit Unions and Social Impact Measurement and Reporting Seminar with the subheading of Realising the Potential. And as Nick told us, that's on Wednesday the 25th of November. Thanks for listening today. And if you wish to leave some feedback, please contact me on smithowls at gmail.com. That's smithowls, all one word, at gmail.com. Bye for now. <laughs>